I'm getting a boating license in the state of Missouri currently, and I'm taking this pretty long course. And uh, there was a truly insane part of yesterday's lesson um, that was basically, it started out and it was like, it's generally illegal to throw garbage into Missouri waterways. Don't throw trash in the water. I was like, okay, I get that. And then the next part of the lesson was like, if you do want to throw trash in the water, here's how to do it. <laughs> Damn, like, Missouri. Yeah, like... Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman. I'm joined by my regular co-host, copyright copywriter, Jeremy Ruggles. You will never get a hold of this copyright. (laughs) We will sue you. And of course, assistant director of the Anti-Alliteration Association, Peter Cook. (laughs) All the anti-alliteration association were fighting the good cause. I will sue your good cause. You're, I would say you're fighting the fine fight. Oh! <laughs> there you go. Oh. But it's the Maybe an- I got the titles mixed up. It's the anti-alliteration association. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Getting it for the good guys. And then that fresh voice you just heard just so happens to be our special guest for this episode, who is an officially sanctioned West Borland tablature correctionist. Nicholas, thanks for joining us. Hey, uh, what can I say? I love correcting West Borland tablature. That's me. That's what I do. (laughs) Uh, What else do you do? You want to tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive into this record? Yes, my name is Nicholas Naoti. I live in both Fairfield, Iowa, and Kirksville, Missouri. I like at the same time, like you're in two places at once, like doing some astral projecting, or yes and no. I do that, and I also just go back and forth because I own a house in Fairfield, and I'm living at my partner's house in Kirksville. Okay. I am a musician, and I make educational videos about. Apple products for money. Okay, right on. What record are we going to talk about today? I'm thrilled. Firstly, I just want to say thank you guys for having me on. Huge fan of the show. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Peter. I'm thrilled this week to be talking about Joan Armatrading's self-titled album from 1976, Joan Armatrading. Right on. This was Joan's third studio album, correct? Yeah, 1976. She was 26 years old when it came out. I purchased this record for 60 cents. Ooh, under a dollar. Under a dollar. And I think it's extremely good and overrated. I'm sorry, underrated. (laughs) (laughs) I would agree with underrated insofar as I had never heard of it until you were like, hey... These albums might be good for your show. And I was like, 
hey, come on the show, Nicholas. And uh, Jonah Armatrading was one, like the one I had not even heard of at all before this. Her records are pretty common. I've seen yeah. them around in record stores for years and for very cheap. But uh, I never really checked it out until Spotify, the Spotify algorithm blessed me in like 2015 or so and played the song Save Me, which is mind-bendingly good. I think it's an amazing song. And this album is all over pretty good. Well, we'll definitely be getting to Save Me. But what do we want to listen to first to give people a taste of this underrated artist? I think we should start with none other than the first track which is called Down to Zero. Let's hear it. Perfect. some major Joni Mitchell vibes on that track. Uh, I think so. Definitely. Yeah. I, I love Joni Mitchell. I can feel that influence for sure. Mm-hmm. Joni has been referenced many times on this podcast. Cause it seems like a lot of the folk influenced records we cover also have a strong jazz influence. So it's kind of impossible not to mention Joni when you're talking about that specific blend of styles. Sure. Also, Joni is just a master, just the most amazing songwriter. So it makes sense she would be influential to everyone. Mm-hmm. But yeah, aside from the stylistic blend, I definitely feel like some of the way that Joan articulates and 
the vocal delivery remind me a lot of the specific Joni Mitchell vocal delivery vibe. Well, yeah, it's it's a good thing. True. Sure. I'm I'm also I don't know if I, I'm also picking up on a little bit of Nina Simone. Yeah, kind definitely. Of in the kind of range, how she goes real deep sometimes. Mm-hmm. That was the other thing I had thought of when listening to this record earlier today. So cool. I'm glad I'm not crazy. <laughs> no, she. Uh... Joni Mitchell was brought up in the documentary that I watched. That was a pretty recent documentary from 2019. It's an influence. She was, I think Joan was kind of following, if you know, you're talking sequentially, Joan Armitrading's right after uh, Joni Mitchell would have been having a pretty big impact on artists and definitely an influence on her. Sure. And this album actually peaked, this was released on A&M Records, 1976, as we said, and it peaked at number 12 on the charts. I'm pretty sure that's the UK charts. It was certified gold by the British Phonographic Industry. I guess that's uh, who certifies those things over there. And how did you come to find, you said that it was, um, you found Joan Armatrading through Spotify algorithms, Nicholas? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I've been seeing her her records in stores my whole life, but then um, Spotify popped on the song "Save Me," and I I like was immediately smitten with it. It's just her voice is so powerful and potent. It's especially strong on this album, I think, and so I just kind of became obsessed with it. And then I looked around for a copy, and as I said, found one for sixty cents. Yeah, that's amazing. I I think I paid uh, two and a half bucks for the copy that we're listening to today, and that's still. I thought that was a pretty good deal, but you you beat me there. <laughs> this album was produced by Glenn Johns, as we said, it was her third album, and Glenn Johns is, I think, a name that we're all familiar with as far as producers go. Yeah, so Glenn, this would be the first of three records that Glenn would produce for Joan Armitrading. And he would later say that this album was the best album he had ever been associated with. Uh, and, which, and that's that's saying which, something. It's huge because he, mi- he mixed and engineered like Beggar's Banquet, Exile on Main Street, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, like all the best Rolling Stone albums. And he worked, on, albums. he worked on uh, Zeppelin albums and Beatles albums, Eagles, Dylan, The Who... The Clash, Small Faces, and Faces, Fairport Convention, Blue Oyster Cult. It just goes on and on and on. Yeah, he, he engineered Let It Be and Abbey Road. And he also mixed this album Songs for Beginners by Graham Nash, which would be another one for you guys to consider for the show. I love that album. And I got the record yeah. for around a dollar. But um, for him to for him to say that this was the best album he'd ever been associated with is huge praise. Yeah. That really stuck out to me when I saw that. I was like, damn, that's high praise. And the production on it's really interesting and good, I noticed. It's not, most of those things you listed were like classic rock. And that is not the vibes I got from this at all. But it also wasn't super folky. Right. I don't know what you'd call it. It it sort of blends elements of rock and country and jazz and disco and a bunch of things but yeah it's kind of all over the board but the i think the production is very creative and feels very modern 
Yeah, Jeremy, the thing is that you having a difficult time categorizing her. You're not the only one. The record labels didn't know how to promote Joan Armitrading. They really struggled to categorize what she was doing in the time that she was doing it. They didn't know how to market a black woman doing folk music, music that wasn't, you know, traditionally, quote unquote, black. Yeah, that that's that's a common theme I've I've heard from a lot of black musicians that were doing something that strayed from the format that people thought they were supposed to be performing. I mean, even Prince dealt with that to a certain extent. Like he was making rock and pop records, but all of it's, you know, in the funk section because people just assume that's what he's making. And Joan Armitrading is British on top of it. And I guess British black music, she said this herself, like in in that time period, the early seventies, it it was all the American black artists that were considered cool. And the British black music didn't get the same hype or respect. One thing I really liked about this record is that you can tell all the players on it are extremely talented. And there's like a few moments in some of the different solos where like, wait a minute, like these people shred. But at the same time, it's all very tasteful, especially the steel guitar solo on that track down to zero. I did a little bit of time researching some of the players. I think that's the only track that BJ Cole played on the steel guitarist and he's got a ton of interesting associations and records he's played on some harder rock stuff like humble pie and uriah heap but then at this period in the mid 70s he was actually playing pretty regularly with t-rex which i thought was an interesting association for this record oh nice yeah i guess this would have been around the same time as electric warrior probably something like that Mm, yeah true Maybe that's a little earlier. I don't know. Uh, BJ Cole was on T-Rex's Light of Love in 74. Okay. And then also on, in 74, Zinc Alloy and the Hidden Riders of Tomorrow. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, those are the two (laughs) records. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) The electric guitar on most of this record is, I think all of the record really, is Jerry Donahue, who was in Fairport Convention and Fotheringay. Man, the solo, we're not going to play this song, but the solo on Tall in the Saddle was completely sick. Yeah, definitely. And all the acoustic guitars, Joan Armitrading. Yeah, and 12-string. And 12-string. Some other people like Dave Maddox from Fairport Convention is on the drums on a number of tracks, as well as Kenny Jones from Small Faces and Faces and The Who is on drums on some other tracks. I'm sure Glenn Johns brought some of those players in. Yeah. Yeah, this record literally has a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee playing with Kenny Jones. And Peter Wood, who was on organ and piano, who worked with Pink Floyd, Lou Reed, Bob Dylan. He worked with Al Stewart, co-wrote Al Stewart's big hit, Year of the Cat, and was on an album we featured on this podcast, Cindy Lauper's She's So Unusual. It was the synth on that one, right, Sean? Yeah, like just the synth and general keyboard work on there. Also... Al Stewart's Year of the Cat is the same year as this record, 1976. And then Peter Wood also played on an Ian Matthews record in 76, the album Go For Broke. Oh, nice. All the connections to former features on this podcast. So there's a lot of heavy hitters on this. So this features one of Joan's biggest hits. I don't know that in the States we really hear this song, but it's a pretty big hit in the UK called Love and Affection. Do we want to cue that one up? Let's rip it. Spin it. I am not in love 
But I'm open to persuasion East or west Where's the best For romancing With a friend I can smile But with a lover I could hold my head back obviously a really good song her vocals are really expressive and i can see why it's a hit it's not one of my favorite songs on the album and it's solely because of the deep vocals that give me love (laughs) i just i'm just not a fan of deep vocals it sounds weird to me you might not have liked the andy pratt record that we did because he alternates between a high falsetto and a really low weird voice I want to I want to hear it. Now I'm intrigued. I mean it's a good it's an interesting and good album, but it's definitely it jumps in very different directions constantly, but we'll focus on this one and I do have a detail about that deep backing vocal. That is American actor Clark Peters who's best known for his role as Lester Freeman on the HBO drama The Wire. What? <laughs> no way. <laughs> I shit you not. Far out. That's why. Also, did you guys see that Jones' brother is an actor? No. No. Did anybody pick up on that? Yeah, I, I was doing a little bit of research. Tony Armitrading. Yeah, Tony Armitrading is a small time actor. He's been in a few bigger movies like uh, The Saint. He had a very small role in that movie. The Val Kilmer movie? Um, yeah. <laughs> he apparently voiced one of the side characters in the computer Star Wars game, The Old Republic. Woo! I'm down with Tony Armitrading. Thanks, there Tony. You go. <laughs> Is he yep. also a small times arms trader? You know, I didn't read that from his IMDB bio, but it's possible. <laughs> Tony's just out there armor trading. 
<laughs> I hadn't even thought about making that kind of wordplay on the name until just now. I, I swear. Yeah, pretty go. cool. Talking about the uh, the deep background vocals, though, I, I definitely noticed it while listening, but it didn't bother me, probably because of how much Temptations I've listened to and just gotten used to having those occasional Melvin Franklin yeah. deep backing vocal lines. So Sure, there's a time and a place. There's it's, Yeah, there's, it, it's, it felt weird on this, though. You're right. There's a little too much texture to it. It's a little too... It's like a magnifying glass on it somehow with the production. It's like loud and... Sure, sure brassy it's very brassy brassy this song has been covered by a number of artists it was a number 10 hit in the uk sheena easton martha davis and sly stone did a version of it together melissa etheridge and two nice girls did a mashup cover along with sweet jane like they they mixed this up with sweet jane and actually that version's pretty cool i read that i want to hear that yeah, it's worth checking out. It kind of reminded me of Aztec Camera's cover of Jump by, by Van Halen, where they made it sound like Sweet Jane. Crickets there, Peter. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's fine. <laughs> it's a deep I, cut. <laughs> so I, I'll just say before we uh, start talking about Joan and Joan's background, I first discovered Joan Armitrading probably about the same time as you, Nicholas, about five years ago. Frank Black, a.k.a. Black Francis, a.k.a. Charles Michael Kittredge Thompson IV from the Pixies, is a big fan of Joan Armitrading. And Mm. I actually discovered, he name-dropped Joan Armitrading and Dinah Washington as two of his favorite vocalists. Fascinating. I would not have thought that. (laughs) Yeah. The unexpected from Frank Black. So I immediately checked both of those artists out around that time and was like, yeah, this is... Incredible, and I never hear anyone bring either Joan Armitrading or Dinah Washington up very often. It's like a, I feel like I've also seen her records in record stores quite a bit. Yeah, you're saying uh, Dinah Washington? Dinah Washington, or Joan? yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We featured her on one of our episodes, and it's incredible. You can find so much of her catalog for two, three bucks in most record stores. Like a good several albums <laughs> usually are just sitting there. Gathering dust. Yeah. Fantastic voice. Sometimes you can even buy them for one dollar. <laughs> you can you can buy them for Truth. the uh name of this program. Yeah, Nicholas, do you have some uh background information on Joan Armitrading you'd like to share? Yeah, so Joan Armitrading we've been talking about a little bit is a British, a black British musician, but she was born in nineteen fifty on the Caribbean island of Saint Kitts. Her full name is Joan Anita Barbara Armitrading. Her father was a carpenter and a musician, but weirdly forbid his children from touching his guitar. (laughs) So she was like prohibited from being creative until the age of 14 when she started making music on a piano that her mother purchased as a piece of furniture. They moved from the Caribbean to Britain when she was seven. She dropped out of school at age 15 to get a job, which she lost shortly thereafter for playing her guitar on the job. She started playing shows at age 16 and shortly thereafter joined a stage production of the musical Hair, where she made friends with a lyricist who would go on to co-write a whole bunch of her songs. She released her first album, Whatever's for us 
at age 22, which is also amazing. I actually, I listened to that album today and it's incredible for a debut album. It's so phenomenal. Yeah, I haven't listened to that one. Is it more stripped down? It's a little more stripped down. The production on the self-titled that we're reviewing this week is much cleaner, much more crisp, and much more dialed in. Her first album is, you can hear the talent. Like It's it's a little more raw, but it still sounds amazing. And the songs are very good. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, I'm divided on whether she's more under, underrated as a guitarist or a songwriter, or, or both. <laughs> her songwriting and her guitar playing just from the beginning seem to have been fully formed, fully realized. Yeah, absolutely. Her first album was a little more folky and it would I think this album we're reviewing this week the self-titled has that more kind of cinematic powerful potent sound from like down to zero and save me which is what I really love yeah yeah this one's definitely I uh, I think there was a conscious attempt to steer her music in a commercially viable direction I mean I don't think she was ever in it for fame I think she wanted to make her songs you know the best that they could be but i i think with glenn johns getting on board there was a conscious attempt to kind of uh, make something with a little more mass appeal that and when this came out in 76 folk was becoming like uncool and it's kind of a that's sort of what i was thinking earlier is she kind of carries on this tradition of folk and sort of takes it to the next place but like commercially speaking, the audience isn't there anymore. And maybe that's why these are in dollar bins. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think combined with just, yeah, the, the record companies just really didn't seem to know how to market her, and particularly to American audiences from what she was saying in the documentary I watched. And there were some weird advertisements in magazines, and I don't remember the, the wording of them, but they were not good. They had not aged well. <laughs> <laughs> this was her third album though and you said it contains what for you is one of the most powerful songs of all time nicholas yeah so this was uh the song that really drew me to joan Armatrading. it's called save me and without further ado let's rip it sinking caught up in a world in motion such a strange sensation The current's uncertain Like sails of a mill I spin Like wheels I move in a circle While you stand on the bank And you Throw me a lifeline, save me Intimacy and affection frozen In this game of chance I forfeit Full hand of love with no counters Like a monk with no flame to persuade me Like blood in the rain Running thin 
While you stand on the inside Looking in Save me inside Looking in Complete in yourself Throw me a life down Save me This game of chance I forfeit A full hand of love with no count Like a moth with no flame to persuade me Like blood in the rain running thin While you stand on the inside one thing that really impresses me with this record is how much variety it feels like it has without making any radical genre shift. You know, like you can easily say that every track on here fits within the same kind of folk jazz crossover vibe. But at the same time, every time I felt like I knew exactly what I was going to get, Joan would kind of surprise you a little bit with the next track. I was pretty impressed with that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that song is just so profound. Her vocal performance is just so good. Yeah, she doesn't overdo it. It's just enough. I noticed wearing headphones when I was listening the first time, I was very focused on, you know, that incredible vocal performance. But I noticed just now there's this kind of bubbling, echoey electric guitar underneath that I really enjoyed this time. Mm, Yeah. I like the way she's using the 12 string melodically instead of as a rhythm instrument. She's like playing a lead that's sort of suggesting this chord structure, but yeah. it's, it's not always completely evident what it is. Yeah, definitely some uh, birds vibe going on there with that. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and she can really shred too. I don't know that we're really going to get a full example of it on the selections we've chosen to feature on this one, but I've watched some live footage of her and she just gets some wicked tones out of the guitar. But, you know, I've seen instances of her playing uh, electric guitars like Fender Strats. Yeah. Yeah. And I got the vibe that Joan is much more respected as a guitar hero in the UK. I was seeing that there's been two different times where she's hosted a special talking about like her favorite guitar players and interviewing other guitar centric artists. So I thought that was an interesting angle to how the perception of her work is, seems to be very different in different countries. Have you noticed she's playing a, uh, on the cover the album cover that she's has an ovation guitar? I didn't notice. Yeah. That. I mean, I didn't realize that was an ovation, but I had read that Joan is a huge fan of ovation instruments. Yeah. Cause she really likes to, hit the guitar hard and they really hold up well under those circumstances. There's actually, I hesitate to bring him up, but it's kind of an interesting detail. There's another famous ovation player who cites her as his favorite guitarist of all time. Can anyone, anyone guess who that might be? Is it Wes Borland? Dave Matthews. <laughs> Dave Matthews. Dave Matthews. <laughs> that checks Dave, out. Dave Matthews. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. He said when he started out, 
Joan Armitrading is exactly what he wanted to do with the guitar. So now all you Dave Matthews fans, just listen to Joan Armitrading. She never dumped a bunch of waste on people in Chicago. <laughs> True. <laughs> or just listen to Dave Matthews. I mean, who are we to tell anybody what to do? True, we're not doing that. <laughs> listen, we didn't start a podcast to not have opinions. <laughs> well, I I have this belief that the younger generation, like maybe the generation in like in regular school right now, they're going to find Dave Matthews and like it because they won't have all the associations we have with it. They'll just have the music itself. And I think the same way we could listen to Nirvana and not have the associations of the like fake culture around it. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, and all the terrible weird... bands that came after that were inspired by it. <laughs> that like we didn't have that. Yeah, we Yeah, uh... we we've actually talked about that angle a few times on the podcast now, how it's it's such a different experience to be divorced from the hype and just look at a record for the musicality. And interestingly enough, Jeremy, what you said about Dave Matthews, that was my introduction to him when I was like young and buying cassettes and CDs at thrift stores because they looked interesting. I remember buying a Dave Matthews tape and be like, oh, this is really good. I like these songs. These are interesting. And then later finding out like, oh, I'm not supposed to like Dave Matthews. I mm. guess I can't listen to this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I just quickly want to point out, Jeremy, I like that you said the generation in regular school. <laughs> is that what you call school? <laughs> regular school? In my mind, I was thinking like, well, not college kids now. College kids now will still like maybe know about Dave Matthews culture. So my sure. brain was like regular trying to school. think of how to refer to is, is that pre-college like Grammar school, school? Uh, elementary school. I like regular school. <laughs> it's the it's the first school you know. It's regular yeah, school. It's just regular. I don't even know if regular school exists anymore though now. Yeah, exactly. true. What's some what's some music that you guys think you would like if you could divorce it from the hype or the the reputation? Well, you know what? The Grateful Dead. Oh, I love the Grateful Dead. I think they're Ooh. great. I do too, and I still get this nagging notion that I'm not supposed to like it. But you know, the older I get now, the more I just let go of that and just listen to them and and enjoy it. I went through a Slipknot phase about a year and a half ago, where I watched a bunch of their music videos, and I gotta say, I kind of like them. I don't ever <laughs> actually want to listen to them, but I think I understand the appeal. If I can like forget my history of of seeing their shirts in Hot Topic and the types of people that I know to wear them. I would definitely agree with the Slipknot thing. Their music is not nearly as bad as people assume it is or have the association of at this point. Mm -hmm. It's it's not incredible, but yeah, it's, you know, there's there was much worse uh, popular metal happening at that time frame. It's serviceable pop metal. Definitely. Can I answer for Sean? <laughs> what you got if sean could just divorce himself from van halen culture he would like van halen <laughs> you might not be wrong there i i'm so picky about anything that's like just like shitty male-centric rock music though i don't know like that's if, reasonable 
Yeah. Like, if I feel like the artist is trying to avoid appearing sensitive at any point, I just don't give a fuck. Listen to the Aztec camera cover of Jump. That sounds like Sweet Jane. Okay, that'll be my introduction. I'll, I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> the gateway into Van Halen culture. Sean, what would you answer for me? For you? Shoot, I'll have to think on that. It I'll sounds like Sean was about to have a revelation. I was going to say that there is, there's maybe a chance that if I knew absolutely nothing about who Eric Clapton was as a person, that I might like some of his music. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> huh. For me, I, I got to also say Jimmy Buffett. I've heard a few Jimmy Buffett songs, and uh, out of context, I'm like, ooh, that hits the spot. And then I'm, I'm like, pull up Shazam, and it's like, oh, weird. He's an excellent songwriter. You know, Jimmy Buffett's an interesting one because he, he represents very different things to different classes of people. The way I was explained it one time is that Jimmy Buffett to a lot of people represents like one of the few things that they get to really enjoy in life these like working class people who never made it as far as they wanted to in life. Jimmy Buffett is their thing of, they get to like have that escape of like hmm. life could be just totally beautiful and relaxing. And I'm going to pretend that it's that. And that's how Jimmy Buffett concerts are. It's hmm. just people having a night of just completely living in this fantasy that they're not allowed to exist in every other day of the year. And I think that's pretty cool. Also, Jimmy Buffett's first record is like an interesting political protest record. Really? <laughs> yeah. All right. I got to listen to that. What's it called? It's called Down to Earth from 1970. And it is not a cheap record either. Hmm. Like it's, that's like a $50 record when you can find it. However, that's one of those records that even though it's valuable, you're probably more likely to find that for cheap than most other similarly valued records. Because like how many people know that Jimmy Buffett has one good valuable record? Hmm. Yeah. When I was very little, like some of the first music I ever heard, I think my family had a copy on cassette tape of changes in latitudes, changes in attitudes. We had that on cassette tape <laughs> at my house and I listened to the shit out of it as a little kid. It has Margaritaville on it. That's like the raison d'etre of Jimmy Buffett's existence, that title. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would say Changes in Latitudes, Changes in Attitudes is the Abbey Road of Jimmy Buffett. I'm just shitting out of my mouth when I say that. I don't know what I mean by that. Totally okay. We're doing that half the time we are talking on this podcast. We're really off on a Jimmy Buffett tangent right now. Yeah, we, should probably, we should probably get back to Joan. I found that after this this album... You know, she she put out a string of albums that are all seem pretty critically acclaimed. And she, I guess she didn't really like to work with the same musicians over and over. She liked to change things up. And gradually more and more, she wanted to do as much as she could on her own. And it was considered a really kind of revolutionary move for not only a woman, but a woman of color to be taking that kind of agency just over the, the production of everything. We talked about Roberta Flack doing that with the album just a few weeks ago, You Like Make a Love album. And uh, Joan kept doing this more and more. She got into like synthesizer stuff in the 80s as, as they rolled into the 80s. and As one does. Yeah, as one does. And she seemed to adapt to it pretty well. 
But she made an interesting point of some of the attitudes of the record company and even critics when she wanted more and more control over her music and she wanted to make more and more of it all on her own. She was labeled a control freak, whereas when someone like Prince or Stevie Wonder does it, they're a genius. Sure, I could see that. Hmm. So she pointed out the kind of unfair difference in opinions. And, and, you know, the thing is, like, her music remained just as good, if not better, as she did that. And she's continued to put stuff out very regularly. She put out an album as recently as two years ago. Yeah, I was. I watched a video of her playing live on some BBC event, some kind of folk award ceremony. She played Down to Zero, uh, just solo on acoustic guitar, and it was so good in 2016. Like she still got it. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't doesn't seem like she has decreased in her ability to write songs, play guitar. So like she's just still on top of her game, and she's. I believe she'll be 70 at the end of this year. I uh, just found out while looking through information on her that she had a, what, what I guess you would call a vocal cameo. She doesn't really sing on the song, but she her voice appears on it. The Queen song, Don't Lose Your Head, from their 1986 album, A Kind of Magic. Hmm. And it's just, she kind of just repeats like what Freddie Mercury's singing. She repeats like, don't lose your head. And it's really weird to me when you get like a major talented artist to have like a cameo on an album like that. It reminded me of Chuck D appearing on Sonic Youth's Goo, just saying like, word up. Yeah. (laughs) Or uh, Eric Clapton, the aforementioned Eric Clapton appearing on Frank Zappa and the Mothers were only in it for the money, just saying, are you hung up? Are you hung up? Yeah, I have... (laughs) So I am actually just launching my own podcast with a couple friends called Bad Dylan about all of Bob Dylan's really terrible albums. And we we listen to one of Bob Dylan's terrible albums for every day for a week and then talk about it. And um, we just finished reviewing this album from 1986, I think, of Bob Dylan's called Down in the Groove. And it has like Eric Clapton, Jerry Garcia, all of the Grateful Dead. It has the bass player from The Clash, Paul Simon on. Uh, I don't know how you're supposed to say that, but that's how I, I think say it's it Simonon, but I'm not positive. I'm pretty sure it's Paul Simon on. Um, <laughs> it's but, Paul Simon. Uh, <laughs> Paul Simon on bass. Anyway, uh, the it's got a whole bunch of famous people on it, and they don't do anything interesting. It's just all normal shitty songs. It's all really bad. <laughs> well, this so so this is going to be your podcast, but how many bad Dylan albums are there? Oh, there's a lot. I mean, he released <laughs> he's got 56 albums, so I don't know. I don't know how long it'll go, but we're we're starting with the worst. Next week I have to listen to the album Saved by Bob Dylan every day for a week. Ooh, one one of his one of his three christian albums it's gonna be a bad time are you gonna be covering his best album that many people think is the worst christmas in the heart (laughs) yes we have to i have never listened to that i'm sure it's good and bad oh it's a classic no it it's just good i think yeah we all are in agreement that it's good here yeah, yeah, new Bob Dylan rules. I'm all about it. 
Nice. I guess his new his okay. new singles are supposed to be really good. My wife Ellen was telling me that she was listening listening to them over and over again yesterday, and I I haven't listened to them yet. I don't know if anyone. It sounds like he might be dropping a new album soon. Hmm. I also firmly believe that even on Bob's worst records, most of the songs are still good, and if they were recorded in a completely different way, that they would be good albums. Sure. I I actually, in the process of listening to Down in the Groove eight times, grew to kind of like it, but it <laughs> it's also like, it's hard to tell if it's just a weird shift in my perspective where like, I get used to, I get used to the way this sounds bad and then I can like, maybe it's, I appreciate it because I just, it's familiar at that point. Maybe a little bit of Stockholm syndrome going on. Exactly. Was this podcast available at all yet? Are you still working on it? It's still, we've, we've finished an episode and edited it, but it'll be available soon. At the current moment, it is not available, but we're going to be launching it in the next month or so. It's called Bad Dylan. All right. So our listeners should keep an eye out, an ear out for that. Yeah, I'm sure we'll uh, repost, repost the link once it's up. Nice. Keep uh, an ear out for that and an eye out for Joan Arma trading. Yeah. Yeah, shall we shall we hear one more song and and close her out? What do you guys say? Anything else? Sounds good. Let's close her out. Yeah, I think we're going to we're going to call this in. Did, did you say you wanted to go out uh which song did you want to go out on somebody who loves you? Yes. The song I wanted to do for the outro tonight is my third favorite song off this album and it's called Somebody Who Loves You. Let's hear it. This all this song today it just occurred to me how great this song is. And so I guess we're going to wrap this up then. Yeah. We're going to go out on this one. All right. Well, this has been another episode of I'd buy that for a dollar that we would rate as fabulous. And thank you <laughs> to our guest Nicholas for bringing Joan Armatrading. I've been wanting to cover Joan Armatrading for some time, Nicholas. So thank you for Bring, I hadn't really listened to this album. I knew a couple songs on it, but it's really a treasure. Yeah, I'm honored to be on. Thank you all for having me. Uh, I'd love to come back sometime. I've got a bunch of these kind of records that I could talk about, so let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah. And check out Nicholas's music, Nicholas Naoti. It's extremely good. Thanks, Jeremy. If you, I guess if you want to check out my music, you can... Look it up on any streaming service. It's just my name, Nicholas Naoti, or you can go to my website, nicholascube.com. Excellent. Well, this has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar, and I am Peter Cook. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. Also, I just want to throw this quick little nugget in. The guest mandolin player on this song, Bryn Haworth, also played on the closing track of John Cale's Fear album from 1974. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. Fascinating. Just can't resist those nuggets. Heady nugs. (laughs) Heady nugs, Sean. That's what I got. I don't know what you're thinking. Should I stay or say goodbye? You blow smoke on the ceiling. You don't want to look into my eyes. Thank you for listening to another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. 
If you enjoyed this episode and you just can't wait till next week to share in some dollar record love, we have the Facebook group for you. I'd buy that for a dollar group. You can share your own dollar bin finds. You can see what other people are recommending. You can... I don't know. Do what you do in Facebook. Click like or comment or share. Those are your three options of things you can do. You can also argue with people that you don't know very well. Yeah. Oh, true. If you share something cool enough, we might even feature on the show. (laughs) Well, thank you for listening and check us out next week. So tired of one night stands Left with longing for misspent passion With one more human to despise You've got somebody who loves you Love is dark, but no stranger.